Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod, where we at the Peace Research Institute Oslo bring you expert perspectives on the headlines, personal stories from the field, and cutting-edge research on the peace and conflict issues affecting today's societies. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Prio's Peace in a Pod series. My name is Julia Pollick, and I will be hosting today's discussion. I'm a senior researcher at PRIO, leading a research project on the effect of non-state actors' disarmament on conflict recurrence. Today, we are going to talk about issues that are at the core of peace and conflict researchers' work, namely, how to stop violence. We are going to focus on violence in different contexts, ranging from post-conflict to non-conflict ones, and attempts to mitigate violence through disarmament and arms control programs. We have an excellent group of experts to discuss these issues today with us, Miriam Corona Ferrer, Guy Lamb, and Nick Marsh. Please introduce yourselves, Miriam. Hi, I'm Miriam Coronel Ferrer. I was the chief government negotiator for the government that signed the peace agreement with the More Islamic Liberation Front in 2014. I am working now in different capacities as senior mediation advisor. Hello, my name is Guy Lam. I'm based at Stellenbosch University, which is in South Africa. Um, I've been working on peace and security issues in Africa for more than 20 years. I am also um, based with the National Planning Commission with the Government of South Africa, which is a high-level panel that advises government on the implementation of its national development plan. And within the commission, I chair the Justice, Crime Prevention and Security Cluster Task Team. I'm Nick Marsh. I'm a senior researcher here at PRIO. Um, and for about the last 20 years or so, I've been working on various aspects to do with the proliferation of weapons uh, and also the control um, of the use of weapons and violence, um, gun control uh, and other methods uh, to reduce violence, both in conflict and non-conflict environments. Thank you all. We have a fantastic group to discuss things. And I thought I would kickstart the discussion with uh, summarizing a few things from a report that was released on the 14th of September by the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. This report looks at the linkages between illicit arms, organized crime, and armed conflict. The report shows that how closely intertwined crime and armed conflict is and how they are fueling each other. But it also has a particularly important point when it talks about attempts to make peace and how that might affect these trends. The report says that when hostilities cease and parties to a conflict move towards a peaceful resolution, the widespread availability of surplus arms and ammunition can contribute to a situation of, quote, criminalized peace that obstructs sustainable peace-building efforts. So I wanted to bring in this quote as to kickstart the discussion and first look into post-peace process context. So the first question will be addressed to Miriam. So Miriam, given your central role as the head of the Philippines panel and the peace talks with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, that is IMLF, uh, that culminated in the signing of the peace agreement in 2014, uh, the agreement, as we know, requires MILF members to disarm. So the first question would be that, could you please talk a bit about the implementation status of the disarmament and the current situation in the Mindanao region in terms of violence? Well, the implementation since 2014 has been rather slow, but at least it's still going on and no um, conflict, you know, high-level conflict between the government and the MILF has, has occurred 
it's taken a long time. Like it's been over eight years, over the last eight years since we've been implementing. So the the whole idea was to face the disarmament because the MILF did not really want to uh, commit uh, putting down their arms or decommissioning their weapons and combatants without really being sure about what they're going to get out of the political process. And that's why they were rather smart when they the process that they wanted was a phased kind of uh, a decommissioning contingent on some of the political and socioeconomic deliverables. So that's where we are. We are now in phase three of four phases. And at this point in the next few months, they should have decommissioned um, some 70% of the 40,000 combatants and um, 7,000 weapons. Very impressive and very interesting to hear the details about this uh, kind of a positive tit-for-tat agreement. Thank you, Miriam. Um, we are going to come back to the Mindanao context later on, I'm pretty sure about this, but I want to broaden a little bit the conversation and not by not only looking at post-conflict or post-civil war settings, um, because when we're talking about civil wars, uh, it is a robust finding that we usually refer to low-income countries. But violence uh, is not only prevalent in these countries, but in many middle-income countries in the global south, they are in fact, many of them experiencing staggering levels of violence without having a civil war. Nick, could you please reflect a bit on non-civil war context trends when it comes to violence and attempts to limit that violence? Um, yes, certainly. Um, I mean, it's it's worth considering the the latest year for which we have um, global data on homicide. Um, that's for 2017. Uh, there was about 464,000 um, homicides. So sort of. Uh, violence committed as part of homicide globally is a much larger problem in that year than, um, you know, violence committed uh, in in wars. Um, in terms of trends, uh, there was, uh, as far as we know from the available statistics, um, there was there was an increase in homicide um, from 1990 through to 2017. Um, and I'll talk a bit later about the um, the, the trend after that, um, but we we can also see uh, particular regions are much more affected than others. Um, uh, the Americas, uh, you know, are the sort of area of the world most affected by uh, uh, homicide. Um, for example, just for figures for uh, for last year, twenty twenty one. You know, over 11,000 homicides in Venezuela. Um, Jamaica, um, you know, a small country, uh, just less than 3 million population. Um, there's uh, almost 1,500 homicides there. Um, you compare that to, say, European countries, um, you'd be looking at, uh, you know, a large country like Spain with sort of low hundreds um, uh, in, of homicides per year. So the sort of levels of violence are, are, are very much larger, um, particularly in the Americas. But, and Guy, I think, will talk about the situation in South Africa. Um, so when we're looking at uh, middle-income countries uh, in particular, um, we, we can see sort of particular problems there. Um, uh, and we can see, uh, you know, in aggregate, high levels of violence being linked to things like uh, 
profound uh, inequality, um, urban deprivation, um, ineffective or counterproductive policing. Um, and then looking more uh, in detail, sort of local factors in many of these countries appear to be the role of gangs, um, organized crime, uh, and in particular sort of militias associated with um, business leaders or political leaders. Um, so people using violence as uh, a way to you know, get what they want. Um, uh, in, in terms of gender, I mean, in the Americas, uh, the male homicide rate is about 10 times uh, that of females. So, you know, men and boys are being killed you know, 10 times um, as often. Um, and again, in the Americas, about three quarters of uh, homicides are committed with firearms. Um, and the sort of availability of guns in, in the context of large amounts of gang violence or, or organized crime, uh, you can see the, the weapons mattering in terms of increasing the, the lethality of you know, inter interactions between armed groups. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, just to wrap up the more recent trends, um, it does appear that there's been a decline since 2007 in, in a lot of the key countries. We don't have global data. Um, but uh, countries like Venezuela, Guatemala, um, Brazil, the, the homicide rate does appear to have declined over the last few years. So there, there is some, some cause for some optimism. Fascinating, but also very depressing. Thank you, Nick, for this uh, very elaborate uh, description. I just want to reflect on the fact on a few numbers when you were citing annual homicide numbers, that it's very interesting that normally in conflict research, uh, the threshold that you consider as being a war is a thousand better related deaths annually. So uh, comparing this to the numbers that you cited, it is kind of obvious that how big this problem is. So very interesting. Thank you. I want to turn now to Guy and while Nick painted this uh, rather horrific picture about what's happening, can you please talk a little bit about maybe through the South African example of what kind of attempts have been there to control the availability of arms or to disarm uh, various non-state actors and with what kind of success rate? Sure, I mean, maybe to talk a little, take a historical reflection on this because South Africa is sometimes regarded as a post-conflict country because there was a, you know, a conflict that lasted for decades through the 60s, 70s and 80s <clears throat> into a negotiated settlement in the early 1990s, which saw a power-sharing agreement being secured between, you know, liberation movements, but particularly the main liberation movement, the African National Congress, and the apartheid government that was led by the National Party. Um, an important part of it was there was a demobilization disarmament process with that, but that was specifically linked to the liberation movements um, and it was linked to the integration of some of them into the armed forces, but it was also around the demobilization and reintegration of those uh, particular individuals into, into civil society. But the issue within South Africa at, at the time had a very large population of civilians who were armed. Um, and what we saw after the political transition or during the political transition, so after the signing um, or the, the initiation of the peace process and then we're seeing a constitutional reform process is we're seeing a dramatic esca escalation in criminal violence, particularly armed violence. And it gets to the point in the late 1990s where South Africa has a murder rate in excess of 60 per 100,000, putting it up to be one of the most violent countries in the world of looking at, at murder rates. Then what happens is the murder rate comes down by close to 50 
50% over a 10-year period. So you see it coming down from the late 90s to about 2009, 2010 by about 50%. Um, And a lot of that had to do with what the state was doing in terms of firearms um, and ammunition. And the term disarmament wasn't used. It was firearm reform, firearm control was used, but actually it was a form of disarmament. So it was a combination of using policing and a combination of using legislation to do civilian disarmament. But because civilian disarmament is such a controversial issue and it had kind of racial aspects to it because it largely white populations earned vast quantities of arms, that there was concern about that. But essentially what happened was the police targeted the illegal pool, which was in excess of 500,000 weapons estimated during the early 2000s, um, and focused on areas where violent crime was the highest and engaged in this kind of saturation, high-density policing, which is a kind of a militaristic, aggressive form of policing of going in, confiscating as many firearms as they can, arresting those in possession of those illegal firearms. Um, And at the same time, it reformed the firearm law and used the firearm law to restrict the number of firearms that individuals can own. So it meant that a lot of individuals who had licensed firearms had to surrender a number of their firearms because they exceeded the new limit, the, the maximum limit that had been applied. So the state had amnesties in place and hundreds of thousands of firearms were surrendered due to that process. So those sort of combination of factors, maybe also the stabilization in South Africa, sees this dramatic reduction in the murder rate within South Africa down to about 30 per 100,000 from in excess of 60 per 100,000. But what happens from 2010 onwards, and this is where when taking a long view at disarmament and how important it is for the state to continue to focus on this, to realize that it's not a one-off issue, this is something you have to keep focusing on, is that weapons in the hands of the police um, through certain corrupt individuals get directly sent to armed groups, namely gangs, in certain places, particularly in the city of Cape Town. And then we see in the city of Cape Town and also in Nelson Mandela Bay, which is another coastal city, um, you start to see from 2010, 2011, dramatic escalations in murder. We start to see that climbing at a consistent rate to the point that it almost doubles. So from the sort of 30s, mid 30s per 100,000 in these kind of cities up to 70 per 100,000 in the case of the city of Cape Town. And what actually happens here is because these firearms are being sold directly to gangs, it sparks and initiates and exacerbates existing gang conflicts. And then other gangs seek to acquire firearms and it really just leads to reprisal murders, attempts to to seize certain territory. So here we're seeing situations where, you know, we can't look at disarmament in a very narrow view. It's about, you know, in a country such as South Africa, which is deeply unequal and has many of the kind of risk factors for violence, like making firearms available to armed groups really can uh, lead to a dramatic increase in, in injuries and, and violence and deaths as a result of that. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Guy. This was super interesting to hear over time that how the state can both play a positive role in terms of through a very strong action plan limiting access, but other in other times the state can also facilitate uh, the spreading of these uh, firearms. Nick, do you have any comments on yeah, this? Yeah, just uh, just to to help the the listeners. Um, when Guy was talking about rates of sort of thirty per hundred thousand, sixty per hundred thousand, um, just to compare that with the United States, um, which is often portrayed as a, a particularly violent country. Um, I mean, the the national homicide. Um, 
rate last year was uh, just under seven per hundred thousand. So, uh, and certainly you've got cities in the United States which are, uh, you know, comparable uh, comparative uh, levels to what Guy was talking about. But overall, the the, the United States is enormously less violent uh, than South Africa or uh, to the countries in the Americas um, to the south of it, so just to help people uh, understand the, the sort of levels of violence we're talking about. I think this is a key point, and thank you very much for that, because uh, there is some kind of a um, misleading portrayal since the American gun violence phenomenon gets so much media coverage that it's very easy to think that that is one of the most violent places in the world, whereas if you open uh, various uh, media outlets, you're rarely reading about what's happening in South Africa. Thank you so much both for this. I want to follow up a little bit, but also take away the uh, or diversify the focus from the state, and I want to turn to Miriam. Um, so Guy was talking about the various roles that the state performs in terms of controlling or enabling access to firearms. But in many places, it's not just the state that performs such tasks, meaning trying to limit access to firearms and also to limit violence. Uh, can you please talk a little bit about if there are non-state actors who are not violent, but who are working for peaceful communities, essentially, and if you have any examples from the Philippines? Well, definitely the uh, peace process in the Bangsamoro has been accompanied by very active civil society participation, both at the national level and uh, also, of course, at the localities and the different communities. There has been a blossoming of civil society organizations there, of course, many of whom you might say are very sympathetic to the Bangsamoro cause, but they are now deaf precisely. What we're seeing now is that kind of a partnership, partnership with regard to the security situation, and the agreement does provide for different mechanisms for that. Uh, first of all, of course, we understand why the MILF will be a little, you know, uh, hesitant to disarm when there are so many arms, like in South Africa, all over the place. There are the criminal gangs, the, the syndicates, and there are also the jihadist movements. There are the politicians with their private armies. So the peace agreement does call for a joint task force to be able to address this um, problem of pri other private armed groups and... Um, it also calls for creation of a joint peace and security team, especially in critical localities where you would have the MLF and uh, the armed forces, members of the armed forces of the Philippines, uh, sort of uh, working together to secure the uh, the safety of the community, or at least to prevent um, possible uh, violations. And then, of course, the fact that the conflict is gone, it has, and the armed forces have also moved out in large numbers from these areas, then it also meant that um, there is actually uh, very little now in terms of that kind of a vertical conflict between the government and the um, erstwhile separatist movement, the more Islamic liberation front. But uh, the data would show that there are still spikes of violence coming from jihadist groups. There was one major war with them uh, that happened a few years ago, and criminal syndicates, drugs, and so on, plus electoral violence. So you can see that um, these kinds of conflicts, social level, uh, but also quite political in nature, especially if they involve politicians having so many 
are men, um, then uh, these are all part of the problem, but it's like sort of, you know, step by step. Stop the big war, then deal with the smaller wars. It's a big challenge still. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Miriam. I think uh, this uh, case reflects well uh, this term that I quoted in the beginning, this criminalized peace that can very easily evolve after a peace agreement has been uh, concluded. I want to circle back a little bit to what Nick was saying earlier when he cited this uh, well-known phenomenon that the main perpetrators of violence, as well as the victims, are disproportionately men when it comes to firearm violence. But women are also impacted in very different ways. Uh, And they are very often at the forefront of trying to manage these issues. And uh, I do not only want you to reflect on... um, women, but kind of intersectional issues, because Guy also mentioned racial issues. I'm pretty sure that there is difference when it comes to rural, urban um, populations, etc. So if, Guy, you can maybe talk a little bit about uh, these kind of identity markers and how they interact both with firearm ownership as well as attempts to limit the violence. So, I mean, I'm referring to South Africa, but South Africa mirrors many other violent places. I mean, there's kind of quite a few similarities with Latin American cases around Brazil, Mexico, for example. Um, within South Africa, it it's, it's, has similar trends to you find in many other violent countries. Namely, it's the main perpetrators of firearm violence are men, particularly young men under the age of 40. Um, also, victims tend to be in the same age category, um, but it's usually from age 15 upwards between 15 and 40 usually are the kind of main victims. And it's it's often around the, the difference between victim and perpetrator is really in the eyes of the beholder. Often both are perpetrators in these kind of contexts, unless the victim is the victim of robbery. But most murders within the context of South Africa take place as a result of arguments and disagreements. And often it's in the context of drinking alcohol. Um, so there tends to be, when you're looking at firearm violence, tends to be a focus on young men. But there's also, fortunately, a fairly large and sophisticated scholarship on violence against women within South Africa. So we know a lot about um, the circumstances and the experiences of, of how women experience violence, particularly firearm violence. Um, so the focus has largely been on lethal firearm violence, of which men are, are, are mainly experience that. But in the context of, of women and girls, they experience the the less lethal forms of that. So typically it is the the threats that come with firearm ownership. And we know from some excellent studies that our Medical Research Council has has kind of driven around risk factors for uh, sexual violence. And the sort of from a perpetration point of view, it's when a man has access to a firearm is seen as largely a, a key risk factor combined with many other risk factors. But often a firearm is in the area or within the home or within the premises where a, a rape or sexual violence happens is often in the context of, of physical violence and physical threats that happen. Um, we also know that um, certain individuals in the police or in the private security sector are a lot more at risk of perpetrating violence against women and girls involving a firearm, so firearm threat or firearm injuries. Um, another interesting component of, of kind of the gendered aspect of firearm use in South Africa is when men do 
uh, perpetrate femicide against intimate partners, this is usually followed by a suicide. So the sense of around you, you, you murder your partner and then you have serious regrets as a result of that because it's a highly emotional incident and you had access to the firearm and thereafter you murder yourself, you commit suicide. Um, so that's that one dynamic. But what we're seeing... Um, from the data that's really interesting, and I would it would be it be fascinating to look at what's happening in other contexts. Is in South Africa, the the police have recently started to release quarterly crime data and quite detailed quarterly crime data after civil society applied a lot of pressure, um, and they are providing some gendered data. So we're getting data on the murder of women and children, and what data we have is we're starting to see quite significant increases in femicides, murders of women, and increases in murders of children and firearms playing a key role in that. So it's it's we can just speculate at the moment around what COVID has done to economies, what it's done to social relations, the pressures that's applied on, on, on households that are vulnerable to violence perpetration. There seems to be quite widespread and easy access to firearms and ammunition. So that seems to be driving all of that. So these are kind of the kind of gendered aspects. But what we're also seeing and kind of circling back to, Julia, to your comment at the beginning about this kind of criminalization of violence is we're seeing also an uptick in mass murders happening involving firearms. And it seems to largely be driven by criminal groups. So it's by extortion rackets who are attempting to seize control of certain areas, largely in poorer areas, and are using violence to signal. So, you know, random drive-by shootings um, to, in a way, instill fear in populations and businesses so they will pay the protection money in inverted commas or pay the, the fee that is demanded. But we've also seen it within the illegal mining sector. So in parts of South Africa, there are abandoned mining areas which weren't commercially viable for big companies, but illegal artisanal miners are being able to, to eke a living out of that. And you're seeing armed groups similar to the days of the Wild West within, within North America um, accessing firearms and engaging in battles with each other as a result of accessing those firearms. Thank you very much, Guy. This is a very heavy topic, uh, uh, I want to say, and it's uh, staggering to uh, listen to this kind of optics when it comes to femicide. I uh, have research experience uh, in the context of Yemen, uh, which also is awashed uh, with firearms, that the conflict just made this much worse, essentially. And the, similar, the data shows very similar trends there, too. But I think Nick wanted to add something to this discussion. Please. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I just wanted to um, sort of pick up on a couple of things I mentioned about the gendered aspects um, and, and sort of talking more generally um, rather than about South Africa. Um, uh, over and over again, if you look at the, the official statistics, at least, uh, vast majority of firearm owners are, are men. Um, you know, so, some places 80, 90 percent uh, of those, you know, with gun licenses. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of gendered aspect of firearms ownership is, is, is absolutely stark. Um, and you can see this being reflected um, when you know people interview uh, firearms owners, that there's uh, you know often a clear link um, between sort of masculine identities, um, feeling that as a man you should have a gun, you're supposed to be the protector of the family, for example, and so sort of firearms ownership um, becoming intertwined with sort of um, societal expectations and personal identities about um, ownership. But uh, but of course uh, you know the. Uh, women do own guns in, in specific contexts, and, 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 and you know we, we've also been talking um, uh, at other points um, 
but you know women who are members of armed groups who are members of um uh uh, rebel organizations, non-state uh, groups as well. So certainly there's, there are important cases of women who, who own and use firearms, but still, you know, overall it, it tends to be associated with men. Very interesting, and I'm obviously not going to miss uh, the only woman who is <laughs> here to reflect <laughs> well, on the gender I aspect. Thought, uh, so just Miriam. share a little some, after some of the anecdotes, because there hasn't really been a systematic study of how women are uh, sig- significantly um, contributing to precisely that kind of uh, total disarmament within the community. But we, we've had cases when some a group of women actually stage a sex strike. No sex until you stop the fighting. This is a fighting between uh, families, clan feud, which is very, very uh, prevalent over there because it's customary justice. It's basically the weakness still of the justice system. So they sort of settle scores among themselves. And uh, that creates a lot of fear because people will have to go on hiding and it can be anyone who will be targeted back. So they wanted to stop that kind of cycle of violence between the within the community and that's what they threatened <laughs> their men to do. And uh, I had this very interesting meeting with the governor of one province where he invited all his mayors and they were all men. But he kindly asked one woman to come along, sit beside me. And when the mayor was talking about, you know, I had to mediate all of these conflicts, like just your cow, a neighbor's cow getting into uh, the farm of one, um, the, the neighbor, and suddenly they're shooting at each other. Or just like a, a spitting and the sputum hitting, hitting someone. And now and then they will be like killing each other. And uh, the only woman aside from me at the table, said it's because there are too many guns. And I think that no man within the table would have pointed that out. It's so easy to kill and settle this kind of scores using the gun because it's so handy, it's there, and everybody has it. So I think uh, we should really be looking at the different ways and means. We know, of course, the gendered role of women in dealing with the, um, uh, trying to prevent their young sons and daughters, in fact, to get into the jihadist movements precisely because they're the ones who are very much in contact with their children. Uh, so the things along this line, but these are still anecdotes, really. I, I would think that there are many, many different ways um, women have taken up um, the cause of really uh, stopping the proliferation of farmers, but they're still sort of generally operating with the context, the cultural context. Very fascinating, uh, Miriam. I um, I just want to bring in another example uh, that kind of reflects this sex strike one too, which uh, I think is a very powerful one and shows both the resilience and the creativity of women at the local level. There was this initiative then, and I might uh, misremember the name in Israel, called No, no Guns on the Table. So the IDF soldiers... Who had access, who has access, who have access to guns, multiple guns, uh, heavy firearms, couldn't bring the guns at home. Simply, uh, this was a local women's organization's initiative to essentially try to lower the chances of escalation when it comes to any kind of conflict. So, women all over the world, and there is substantial research about this, uh, have 
essentially organize their ways and try to find ways to limit violence. Very interesting example. I think that this is uh, one of the, uh, how should I say it, most fascinating parts about this discussion. So uh, I can see what the listeners cannot, that both Nick and Guy wants to jump in. And the Guy was the first. So Guy, please. Yeah, I just want to reinforce uh, what Miriam has said. I think there's some, been some very interesting cases in South Africa and it's been documented um, not necessarily through kind of, you know, random control trials or those kind of studies, but um, we we can see through interventions and linkages to changes, particularly when it comes to legislation. So South Africa government realized that it had a very serious problem with crime and particularly with gun crime in the late 1990s. And but it was the sense around what should it do about it. But there'd been the sort of momentum building amongst communities and amongst civil societies. And it was actually a number of female-led organizations and networks that came together to set up something called the Gun Control Alliance, which was pushing back against not, it wasn't particularly powerful, but it was very vocal gun lobby within South Africa. Um, and, and to kind of be the voice of civil society, but it was women-led. And it was very effective in getting the changes to the gun law that were needed. Otherwise, we would not have got such dramatic and radical changes that happened within South Africa in the late 1990s, early 2000s around the gun law. What they also did with the gun law um, and a big push from these organizations was there was there to be effective background checks, not just to be this sort of superficial criminal records check. It was around um, that the police needed to go to homes and interview household members and neighbors in relation to firearm applications. And this way it gave women in those households an opportunity to indicate if they were uncomfortable with the firearm being in that household. And if there was that indication, certainly in the early days, it wasn't as rigorously implemented into the 2000s, but certainly in the first few years, police would then recommend that a firearm license not be issued and then a firearm license wouldn't be issued. But of course, that did present certain risks to female household members, but the police wouldn't necessarily say it was because someone said you um, you were a potentially violent person, hence you're not getting a firearm license. They would just say a firearm license has been rejected. Very, very interesting. And I'm happy that we are bringing in uh, positive examples uh, that are very uh, locally focused. I, So far we've been talking about uh, violence and crime whether within the context of armed conflict or outside of that, perpetrated by various non-state actors, such as rebel groups, criminal organizations, gangs, etc. But I don't think that we should leave out the fact that in many places the main perpetrator of violence is the state and various state actors. Uh, they also have access to much more weapons, different weapons, and uh, they make civilians' lives, they might make civilian lives very insecure. Nick, can you reflect a little bit on the role of the state in perpetrating violence uh, and then how then this type of violence can be limited? Um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of three basic forms of ways uh, we, we can think of the state being being involved. Um, I mean, firstly, uh, directly involved uh, police officers, army officers, gendarmes, etc., committing uh, human rights violations, torture, etc., or, or committing extrajudicial killings, um, 
you know, it, it, you know, going back to the Latin America, Caribbean, etc., you you see brutal repression of protest, for example, or uh, journalists, uh, you know, being disappeared, um, union leaders uh, being killed, uh, and again, we can see the the state being, you know, involved in in those kind of crimes. Um, uh, in particular, we you can see the uh, what well, for me a sort of disturbing trend um, of the sort of political uh, mass popularity of you know quite brutal anti-crime measures that uh, you know there's a perception that the country is at war um, and that these kind of uh, you know arbitrary killings torture etc are, are necessary and that there's you know a certain amount of political support uh, for governments doing that um, Secondly, uh, you get militias um, not part of the state but aligned with the state. So you often see um, uh, the the private armies, uh, for example, that Miriam was mentioned, kind of doing the dirty work uh, for for the police. Um, you know, they're, they're one step away. There's a certain amount of deniability, um, but you know, they're, they're very closely linked. Um, and thirdly. Uh, you can see um, an issue with basic impunity uh, to a great extent for um, you know leaders of organised crime uh, groups, uh, gangs, etc. That you know, as long as they are not inconvenient to those in power, they can get away with uh, with what they want. So you can see the state being uh, involved in those ways. Um, in terms of reducing state violence, uh, I mean, I think Guy's uh, a much better place to talk about this than me, but a, a lot of work has been done on trying to reform uh, police, um, improve policing, uh, to make it actually focused on preventing crime rather than, uh, you know, committing widespread um, abuses. Very interesting. Thank you for summarizing it so clearly. I want to turn now to uh, Miriam and follow up on this, particularly on what Nick was saying related to the popularity or the perceived popularity of uh, mass uh, anti-crime measures that uh, can be very violent. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, somehow the Philippines or parts of the Philippines uh, reminds me of this phenomenon, especially the war on drugs. Uh, and uh, can you reflect a little bit on this? Uh, I think precisely there is a kind of uh, conservative backlash in perhaps the the way people have uh, tried to cope with a, a long, uh, you know, that kind of an insecurity and feeling of helplessness that nothing is really changing. So for most parts, they're looking for a strong leader. I think we saw that very well. And uh, in this case, it's not bad to have a strong leader, but at least, you know, really uh, observe the norms of human rights. But what we experience under the former president is that kind of um, impunity or reckless abandon of uh, legality and, of course, the, the whole notion of extrajudicial killings. Um, and where, where are we now? I think most of the studies anyway show that this is not really the way to solve the problem of drugs, that use um, inflicting violence uh, large-scale and indiscriminate will not, re will probably punish the small-time dealers, small-time users, but 
doing nothing about those who are doing the, the production, the smuggling, and so on. And that's the whole thing. It won't really stop the problem. So what you what we saw is some kind of like a collective punishment, which we see also in a lot of um, in the context of counter counter insurgency uh, communities get sort of like punished as a whole because it's a drug den and and so on and even children end up being killed um, uh, openly by uh, members of the police force well we don't know how the investigation will happen there there's a court case in the ICC but the government has actually pulled out from the ICC how convenient no to <laughs> solve such an issue um Thank you, Miriam. So this entire topic and this very interesting discussion around it is uh, quite bleak, uh, horrible also when it comes to numbers or uh, stories that uh, you've been reflecting upon. So now I want us, given that we are nearing the end of our conversation, to uh, have some hopeful notes. Uh, and, but then, and because Nick was also uh, referring to Guy when he said that uh, limiting state-based violence uh, has some kind of uh, resonance in South Africa. And maybe, Guy, if you can just tell tell to the listeners a few examples where it kind of worked and you think that where there is hope for scalability and adapt and whether these measures can be adapted to different contexts. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's looking at the state-based violence, but then also looking at violence that exists within high crime, high crime communities, high violence, high crime communities. Um, in the case of the state and, you know, what South Africa had to do because it, it had this history of, of, of quite deep state repression, both from the military and both from the police. And so it went through the sort of reform process in the early 1990s and part of that reform process was bringing in independent watchdogs, um, which have had mixed success. I mean, the challenge within South Africa is we brought in these watchdogs, but the police themselves didn't transform as fundamentally as they should have. They remained a largely hierarchical, quite dominant, quite militarized organization. And I think the world over, states and societies struggle to reform police, particularly kind of post-colonial police forces, because they inherit, they inherit these kind of oppressive bodies from the kind of colonial masters, and they develop their own institutional culture. So within the context of South Africa, we have... The independent police investigative directorate, which started off as the independent complaints directorate, which was a sort of a model borrowed from the from the United Kingdom. And it is an attempt to hold the police to account the abuse of power, not only in terms of corruption, but also in the terms of excessive use of force. And so that's had varying degrees of success depending on who the leader was. So at times we've had, you know, effective leadership there and they've been able to hold the police to account in other respects they haven't. Um, but at the sort of... At, at other state levels, there's some very interesting things happening and it's borrowing from this idea of the whole of government, even whole of society approach to dealing with violence. So in the, the, the Western Cape province where the city of Cape Town is based, the government, the provincial government is really trying to innovate around crime, crime and violence prevention because it is so high. And so it's adopted a what's known as the kind of Cardiff model when it comes to working on violence. So it's about generating accurate, real-time data, understanding where this violence is, understanding what's driving the violence, and then developing interventions. So they've been looking at more innovative ways of policing and using their provincial government resources to deal with policing, because most of the resources is at the national level, but also working with other resources, uh, civil society resources in those areas, working with neighborhood watches, working with community policing forums, working with public health services, 
identifying where the vulnerable families are and vulnerable kind of segments in those particular areas where they need to do interventions. So that's worked quite well. But also we've seen things around, you know, models such as gang mediations, you know, kind of emerges out of the US, has been rolled out in, in other areas. It works in some contexts, doesn't work as well in others. It really depends on the nature of the violence there. Uh, Miriam was talking about conflicts that emerge out of disputes between people. And we know this is a, an issue in South Africa and in many other contexts as well. It's around conflicts um, emerge between individuals or within groups, families, social units, firearms are available, and that just escalates the situation and exacerbates the situation. Um, and so there'll be this wonderful model, which is scalable, which was never taken further, uh, which was this idea of peace committees. But the peace committees weren't the sort of sense of these committees when a peace deal is struck. The peace committees were about alternative dispute resolution. So when neighbors are in conflict with each other is that there is a community resource and kind of community mediators who will work with the conflicting parties and help them to resolve the problems themselves rather than letting it escalate. So there's a phenomenal book called Where is the Chicken? And it comes from the anecdote of these neighbors in conflict over a chicken eating you know, the vegetables from the neighbor and the conflict escalates to the point that the neighbor is, is assaulted. And so this, this whereas the chicken book is a sort of a handbook on how to deal with, uh, you know, kind of community conflicts. So this is a really nice, you know, situation where it's largely community driven, but the police were involved in the sense that the police would support this, but they wouldn't be directly involved. If their intervention was required, namely someone had committed a serious crime, they would then intervene. But their point was really to support what the community was doing, not to get in the way, but to play their role when, when their role was needed. Um, and really a final comment, and that's why it's quite difficult from a kind of a civil society point of view, is because of this complex interconnected nature of violence. You know, it's driven by so many different factors. Often in highly unequal societies, it's, it's kind of, that's the underlying terrain that's driving this and kind of leading to different variations of, of kind of violence risk factors, that it, it, you do require these sort of whole of society approaches. You do need these sort of strategies that's going to pull together the different components of government that's going to work with civil society, um, you know, from your health departments to your housing departments to your social development, social welfare departments to your job creation departments to your education departments. And these things all need to pull together. And it's difficult to achieve and the state struggles to achieve it in many respects. But coming back to this, we can really only do these violence prevention interventions if something is done about firearms availability because there's been phenomenal things I've seen, not only in South Africa, that have worked so well, but when firearms come back onto the scene, it undermines everything. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Guy. This was super interesting and uh, I, I need the book. I really want to know where the chicken is. Uh, you mentioned these peace committees, and I want to circle back uh, to the last question to both uh, Miriam and Nick, and first Miriam. I, as far as I remember, in the Philippines, there are also these peace zones, right, that are connected to the Mindanao conflict. Can you talk a little bit about those zones and what is happening there? Most of the peace zones actually were in uh, communist uh, areas where the communist insurgency was active. So it's like a third party community initiative to say no guns here, no no, no fighting here. But the only um, tools that they have is really that kind of uh, moral persuasion. They've succeeded in some cases and eventually it all fizzled out because it needed good leadership. It needed the community to stay intact. But I think what we've been seeing in more recent years are some of the local governments that have actually taken up 
and institutionalize some form of dispute resolution mechanism at their level, um, depending also on the uh, the context. So you would have a context which is like a mixed community where you would have indigenous peoples, Christians, and Muslims. And um, in this community, for instance, there's like a tripartite body that addresses conflicts uh, across the different communities. Otherwise, there will be their respective uh, traditional uh, mechanisms. You would have... Um, the elders, Council of Elders, both in terms of the, is the, the folk practice among the Islamic communities as well as the indigenous community. So there's a lot of this like harnessing what has what's there in the community and trying to level it up, level it up to something more institutional. But at the end of the day, this is really a question of providing very good justice mechanisms. I remember that one of the negotiation issues had to do with Sharia law. Some of those who were fearful of Sharia law felt that it was not going to do, it will bring about, you know, very harsh laws, etc., torture, and, and so on, you know, a, a cruel, punish, cruel forms of punishment. But when we actually met with the Sharia judges, and there was only one woman, actually, among them, and she said, I was taken in because they thought my name was that of a man. So in any case at the time, and today we have much more women coming in and being part of the uh, Sharia justice system. And one thing they pointed out was, you know, the, the Sharia law on personal and family relations does not have any criminal, um, does not have any punitive measure. So domestic violence, for instance, they cannot uh, provide some of these punishments that can be settled at that level without having to go become like a major conflagration between clans um, or even, you know, court case. People don't really go to courts uh, because of the very expensive process. So one of the reforms that we did put in place is put in some uh, criminal law elements in the Sharia court system. Of course, quite controversial because of the fear about Sharia law in uh, among the dominant population. But it's really the idea is to make justice available and these kinds of resolution um, really responsive to people, what the, the conflicts, conflicts that people are facing on the ground. Very fascinating details. Thank you very much for this, Miriam. Uh, Nick, you have a hard task of ending everything in an even more positive note. Um, yeah, thanks. I, I, I Actually, I, I won't end it on a, a positive note, but um, uh, I'll, I'll try to... Uh, try to widen the discussion a bit, um, if, if you'll let me do that. Um, I mean, Guy, Miriam, you've been talking very much about how to reduce violence on a local level, etc. But a lot of, uh, particularly in the Americas, um, we can see violence being driven by much more international forces. Uh, in particular, uh, to sum up um, violence in the Americans, in Americas in a sentence, it's drugs moving north and guns going south. Um, and then there's a key role there to be played by uh, the consumers uh, of those drugs, um, you know, to what extent are they uh, involved, complicit in the violence um, involved uh, in the rest of the continent, or also consumers in Europe, of course. Um, and in particular, to what extent are people in the United States, but also in Europe in terms of production and exports, also involved uh, in the flow of guns going south. So, uh, you know, I, I'd suggest, you know, to, to conclude it's not just uh, about, um, you know, town precincts uh, and, uh, uh, you know, v villages. It's about, 
you know, economic decisions, political decisions being made uh, in different parts of the world and different continents as well. Extremely important last point. Thank you for bringing this in and thank you very much, Miriam, Guy and Nick for this fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.